Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. 1 John, chapter 2, verses 28 to chapter 3, verse 10. Children of God. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. How great is the love of the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the word does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what, we, what will be has not yet been made known But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appears so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one is born of God will continue to sin. Because God's seed remains in him, he cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and what the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God nor is anyone who does not love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. Well, let me uh, add my own welcome to that uh, of Andrew's earlier in the service. It's very good to see you here. If you're uh, new or if you feel a little bit new, you're very, very welcome. And you've come on a good day as we start a series uh, looking at uh, the Trinity. And uh, I'd uh, encourage you to do two things now to... Uh, be uh, ready to uh, follow along for the next uh, 20 minutes or so. One would be to uh, dig out a Bible and to turn back to the reading that uh, Ricky read for us. Page 1226 is the page number 1, John chapter 3. The other thing that I think you'll find helpful would be to dig out this uh, handout uh, as there are a few quotes on there. Even if you don't particularly want to take notes, you might find it useful uh, to follow along. And I need to tell you that in my haste, I sent through some details that were slightly wrong As you come to the back page, the third point comes between the two quotes and not before the first one, if you're interested in that. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, and the Holy Spirit, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. That's what we declared uh, together this morning in the words of the Creed. And with similar words of affirmation, we often state that we believe in one God in three persons, the Trinity. But frankly, does it matter? 
What difference does it make to believe in the doctrine of the Trinity anyway? Would it make any difference at all if we didn't believe in that? Well, look, I want to argue um, over these next four weeks and beginning this week that understanding the Trinity matters and it matters at the most practical level. Our understanding of the Trinity affects some of the big issues of the day. The Trinity affects the way we think about gender distinctives, the roles of men and women in marriage and in the church. And our understanding of the Trinity will help us to see the importance of unity. It challenges individualism, which is rampant in our society. Indeed, grasping the Trinity will affect how I relate to everyone in every area of life, for love and relationship is right at the heart of the Trinity. So understanding the Trinity is no mere intellectual exercise for those who like to dig deep into theology. The doctrine of the Trinity shapes the way we think about things that matter, and nothing matters more than knowing God. And when it comes to knowing God, the great 16th century reformer John Calvin goes as far as to say that if you try to think about God outside of the category of the Trinity, then, and I quote, it's on the handout, only the bare and empty name of God flits about in our brains to the exclusion of the true God. See what he's beginning to say? You can't actually know God unless you think in this category. St. Hilary of Potier, if that's how you pronounce it, who lived in the 16th century, went even further. He said that trying to define God without starting with the Trinity, you end up with a different God. And Mike Reeves, who writes uh, very uh, helpfully um, these days uh, on the Trinity, he puts succinctly, again, on the handout, to know the Trinity is to know God. That's how crucial this doctrine is. And so over the next four weeks, we're going to consider the doctrine of the Trinity, looking at the Father this week, the Son next week, the Holy Spirit the week after, and then uh, the Trinity. And so I'm going to pray, borrowing a prayer from uh, this book, The Valley of Vision. I'm going to pray that we might get to know God better as we get to know the Trinity. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, blessed Son, eternal Spirit, we adore you as one being, One essence, one God in three distinct persons. For bringing sinners to thy glory and to thy kingdom. O Father, thou hast loved us and sent Jesus to redeem us. O Jesus, thou hast loved us and assumed our nature. O Holy Spirit, thou hast loved us and entered our heart. Three persons and one God, we bless and praise you. For love so unmerited, so unspeakable, so wondrous, so mighty to save the lost and raise them to glory. And so wonderful, loving, saving God. Help us now to know you better. And so to love you more. And so to serve you better. For your praise and glory. Amen. Well, we begin this week then by thinking about the Father. Uh, Look with me at 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1 where John writes of the love of the Father. And our first point on the handout, verse 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us. The love of the Father. Uh, This little letter, 1 John, contains one of the most famous statements in the Bible. It comes actually in chapter 4, verse 16, where we read this. God is love. Just three words. 
but three words that we know so well. It's a great truth. It's a truth that um, people want to believe about God. We hear it at weddings. We see it, see it on posters outside churches. And so well known is this statement, God is love. It will even be thrown at us when tragedy strikes. I can't believe in a God of love who allows. And then the latest global catastrophe is uh, cited. But look, even when it is said aggressively, quite often behind that comment lies a genuine struggle, a longing to believe that God is love, but finding it hard to believe that when we witness certain things in the world. God is love. It's a great truth. But here is the thing for us this morning. That great truth that God is love points us towards the Trinity. Have you ever thought about this? For this most famous verse doesn't simply say that God loves, although that of course is true. And this verse doesn't just say that God is capable of love or that he has the capacity to love, although that is true. And crucially, this verse doesn't say that God became love. No, it says that he is love. He, in his very nature and being, he is love and always has been love. So God is love, always has been love, and therefore he was love before the creation of the universe. And in order to be loved before anything else was created, he must have loved within himself. Now Richard of St. Victor lived and died in the 12th century. He explained this very point. Um, He uh, wanted to make this point that for God to be love, he must be more than one person. He argued that if God was just one person, he could not be intrinsically loving since for all eternity before creation, he would have nobody to love. Uh, Richard went further. He argued if there were two persons in the Godhead, then God might be loving, but not with a purity of love that exists between three. For in a relationship of two, God's love might be exclusive and ungenerous. So Richard said that being perfectly loving from all eternity... The Father and the Son are delighted to share their love with and through the Holy Spirit. So you see, when we think about it, that great truth that we know and that we cherish that God is love tells us that God is not just one person on his own. That's very important because it tells us crucial things about the creation and about us. First, understanding that God is love in a loving relationship and within himself knocks on the head one of the great misunderstandings about the creation of the world. And that is this idea that that God created the universe and created us because he needed somebody to love. Just imagine how sad that would be. Poor old lonely God in eternity wanting someone to love. Uh, You know, for all eternity, waking up every morning saying, oh, I want to be loving, but I haven't got anybody to love. And so one day, sort of halfway through eternity, he decided, oh, let's um, let's make somebody then. Let's Let's make creation so I've got someone to love. How disastrous that would be. And it's really disastrous because then God could not be God without us. He could not be love and he is love unless he has someone to love. Do you see the point? It's awful thinking in those categories. So no, God didn't create us because he needed somebody to love. For God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit existed and lived together in glorious, loving, harmonious unity for eternity before the universe began. The point, God didn't need to create the world and us in order to have something to love. Uh, the preacher and author Tim Keller puts it like this. I, I've put the, uh, the quote on the handout. 
The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are each centering on the others, adoring and serving them. And because the Father, Son, and Spirit are giving glorifying love to one another, God is infinitely, profoundly happy. He's happy in himself. He doesn't need somebody else. God is love. And that, incidentally, is why love and relationships and loving relationships are so crucial to life. See, the world that God made reflects the God that he is. We were made in God's image. God is love, so at the heart of the universe is love and loving relationships. That's why loneliness is so devastating and so destructive. That's why we can't live solitary lives that are meaningful and satisfying. It's why we need to be loved. Uh, we were saying all this uh, last Sunday evening. What a great service we had last Sunday evening. We, we were saying how we know this deep down. Listen to the songs that we write and sing. So many of them are about love. Love is at the heart of the universe because God is love. Now that de- great declaration then that God is love points us towards an understanding that God, of God as Trinity. As does seeing our second point on the handout, that God has revealed himself as Father. God the Father. See, time and again, the scriptures equate the terms God and Father, and not just in the New Testament. I've put some references, Old Testament references, on the handout for you to chase up later if you're interested. We certainly see it here in our verse today. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us. Now, please, uh, when we read the, we're reading the Bible that God is the Father... We must not think that this is an illustrative description. The declaration God the Father is not a description telling us that God just acts like a father. That's not it at all. You know, as if God thought to himself, how can I explain to human beings what I'm like? I know. Every human being has a father. I'll say I'm like a father. That's not it. Of course, there are times when the Bible does that sort of thing. Uh, In the two psalms that we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks, we've seen the psalmist describing God's action towards his children like the actions of a hen towards her chicks. As the hen gathers her chicks under her wings to protect them from trouble, so God protects his children. That is illustrative, and we wouldn't dream of concluding that God is a chicken. Well, at least I hope we wouldn't. That is God giving us a picture of something that we can relate to. But it is quite different when the Bible talks of God the Father. It's not just telling us that he acts like a father, but that he is, in his essence, father. Indeed, rather than God acting like human fathers, it's very important that we see it the other way around. We should see that God is the father and human fathers are to act like him. That is crucial, and especially for those who've had a bad experience of their own earthly fathers see over the years i've i've met people who found it extraordinarily difficult to relate to god as their heavenly father because they've had terrible human fathers now this book uh, the father heart of god by floyd mcclung i never forget that name the father heart of god this book was written to deal with that very problem uh, in it mcclung writes and again the uh, uh, the quote is on the handout He writes, is it any wonder that many people have a distorted view of God? They see him through the grid of their own experiences. And when those experiences have been hurtful, it contributes to a wrong impression of God. Many young people react violently when you talk about God as father. They are spiritual orphans, hurt, lonely, confused and separated. 
Now you see, when we respond that way, violent thought of God being father, it's because we have a picture of our earthly fathers in our mind and then we magnify that picture a million times to get a picture of God. Which kind of works when we have a very good experience of an earthly father, but it is a disaster when we've had a poor or worse, a bad or cruel or abusive earthly father. Now what we should do is quite the reverse. We should know that God is the father. He is the perfect father. He is, as Floyd McClung says later on in this book, faithful, generous, kind, just. He loves you and longs to spend time with you. He wants you to receive his love and to know that you're a special and unique person to him. God the Father is a perfect father and we earthly fathers are to follow his example. And the example we should follow is, of course, the father's love for the son. Now, here again is where God's own revelation of himself clearly points us towards the Trinity. As with our understanding of the truth that God is love, so it is with God the Father. The very name Father tells us there must be a son. There must be. Quite simply, if there, ha- if there has not always been the Son, then God has not always been the Father. And if you believe that, then that is that, 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 that God hasn't always been the father that there hasn't always been the son if you believe that then god is not fundamentally father and not essentially loving and life-giving now if i've lost you the point is this god didn't become the father he is defined as father that is very different to human fathers i will never forget the 10th of july in the year 2000 it was the day that our twin girls were born i will never forget holding susanna our firstborn I'll never forget the quiet stillness after all the trauma of the birth as Caroline and I looked down at Susanna and Bethan lying in their little cots. And I will never forget having to take Bethan to hospital three weeks later and being asked by the receptionist, are you the father? And having to think about it before I answered. Uh, Not, incidentally, because there was any question in my mind that I was. (laughs) I had to think about it because until then, no one had ever asked me that question and until then I'd lived on this planet for 37 years and I'd not been a father. And that demonstrates that you could not define me as a father. If you did, then the first 37 years of my existence would have no meaning. No, I became a father, but God didn't. God is the father, always has been. So once I know that God is in his very nature father, then I know there must be one who is son. So again, the great truth that God is Father points us towards the Trinity. Oh, Jesus affirmed this in his great prayer in John chapter 17, verse 24. I've put the reference on here. There's no need to look it up. Jesus prayed these words, Father, you loved me before the creation of the world. So because God has revealed himself as the Father, we know there must be the Son. And that tells us what kind of God God is. It tells us of the loving relationship enjoyed between father and son. It tells us that God is a God who loves to give life. Uh, Mike Reeves explains it, I think, brilliantly in this book, The Good God. It's a fantastic little book. He writes, again, it's on the handout over the page. The father is called father because he is a father. And a father is a person who gives life, who begets children. 
Now that insight is like a stick of dynamite in all our thoughts about God. For if before all things God was eternally a father, then this God is an inherently outgoing, life-giving God. He goes on a bit later. To be the father then means to love, to give out life, to beget the son. Before anything else, for all eternity, this God was loving, giving life to and delighting in his son. God's revelation to us as the father tells us that he is loving, giving, generous. His love is extravagant, so extravagant. He wants to give life to others that they too may enjoy the great blessing of receiving his great love. Now we see why God created. Not because he needed us to love, but because he loves giving. He's generous. He loves to give life and to give love. Now that is exactly what we see in 1 John chapter 3. And uh, this uh, verse 1, it brings us to our third point, children of God. Look at verse 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. I love that word, lavish. The love the Father has and gives is a love that is sumptuously rich, elaborate, luxurious, extravagant. His love is generous, it's liberal, it's bountiful. Well, you see that in creation. Just look at the creation. So a little bird on the, uh, on the bird feeder yesterday a little tree creeper, not seen it on the, on, the, uh, on, on, on the bird feeder before. And I just thought, it's a lovely little bird. And I thought, how amazing of God. Not just to create the occasional bird, you know, a couple of birds, but he created so many different birds. Just an example of how generous he is in his creation. Didn't just create one or two fruits for us to eat. A whole abundance of fruit. He's open-handed. He showers his children with good gifts. We can see it in creation. The extreme lavishness of God's love, but it is seen supremely in him making us children of God. It's hard to believe sometimes. I am a child of God. That is my status. I'm a child of God in the family of God, able to enjoy all the family benefits, sure of the family inheritance. And loved by this God whose love is like no other. Loved unconditionally. Loved as a child. Now that love is extraordinary when we know what we're like. I can hardly believe it. I'm a rebellious sinner. And yet I'm loved with the same love that God had for the Son before the creation of the world. Now we see just how great and generous That love is when we look at the cross as we take communion. Here we see how God can adopt us as his children. Look with me at 1 John chapter 4 and verse 9. This is how God showed his love among us. This is how he did it. How? He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God. No, our love for God is nothing. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. See, here at the cross, here at the cross, we see the extent of God's love. The father sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. 
And we will be blown away by that sacrificial love when we remember that the Father loved the Son with a perfect love from eternity for eternity. He would give his Son. Seven years ago, when my mum was seriously ill and we thought at that time about to die, as my dad sat at her hospital bed, he said to me how he wished he could swap places with her. And he meant it. I could tell he really meant it. It was harder for dad to see my mum in pain, the wife whom he loved and had lo- he loved then and had loved for, for over 50 years. It was harder for dad to see his wife in pain than for him to go through the pain himself and to die. Now, when you've experienced that kind of love for another person, then you know how much the father loves as he willingly gives his son. We often think about the son loving us because he died. But here we also see 1 John chapter 4, verse 9 and 10, that the father loves us because he gave his son, the son whom he loved, giving his son so that we could become children of God. And remember, he didn't do it because he needed someone to love or he needed us to love him. He did it because he is love. Because he is the father and it is his very nature to love and, and with a pure love that delights in loving others. Let me ask you if you've ever been loved so much that someone would die for you. Maybe you have. Maybe the person who loves you that much is sitting right next to you now. It's a wonderful thing. But let me now ask you if you know anyone who you've ignored all your life, who you've... Um, been cruel to someone like that who would love you enough to give you their lives that you might live that's the love of the father the love that gave his son so that we can become children of God and so having received that love the whole trajectory of this letter the way this letter goes after that is that we also should love Uh, The section that that we had read talks about the return of Christ, um, his appearing. And it says here that means, verses 5 and 6, we should stop willfully sinning. And positively, verse 11, we should love one another. You see the same in chapter 4, verse 11. You see, having spoken of the great love God has for us, verse 11, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. See, as children of God, we should be like the Father and the Son. We should share the family likeness. That's the logic of the argument here in our passage. We have been made sons of God, children of God. We should be like our brother, the Lord Jesus, loving God, loving others. This is where knowing the Trinity changes us at the most profound level. Now this week, as I've thought about the, uh, the Trinity and the love that the Father has for the Son, as I've thought about the love that he has lavished upon us, upon me, giving his Son, I found I've wanted to love him more and to be loving towards others. Now, I'm not perfect. I'm never going to get it right, but I've longed to do that. That's where knowing the Trinity changes us. And Mike Reeves makes this point, and he makes the point uh, uh, like this. Again, uh, you'll see it on the handout. 
Have you ever known someone so magnetically kind and gracious, so warm and generous of spirit that just a little time spent with them affects how you think and feel and behave? Someone whose very presence makes you better, even if only for a little while when you're with them. I know people like that and they seem to be little pictures of how God is, according to John. This God, he says, is love in such a profound and potent way that you simply cannot know him without yourself becoming loving. That's good, isn't it? See, in short, our shape of God shapes the way we live. Our view of God shapes the way we live. And when we have a Trinitarian view of the God who loves, of the Father whose love is extravagant, who is lavish with his love, who has loved his Son from all eternity, then we who are born of God will want to love the Father and those around us. We become like that which we worship. And that is why understanding the Trinity is so crucial. It will change us. When I consider the Father who is this generous, I'll be generous. When I contemplate the Father who sacrificed his Son, I will be self-giving. When I reflect on the Father who delights to bring life and blessing to others, I will want to do the same. When I know and think on the God who loves like this, I'll want to be loving, cultivating warm and lasting friendships, even with people who've not loved me. Now that is supernatural Trinitarian love. Let's pray together.